You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hello, NCQA podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us for our last podcast of 2020. I'm Eric Musser, Deputy Director with the Public Policy Team at NCQA. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Pennsylvania's Department of Human Services Chief Innovation Officer, Dr. Doug Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs, welcome to Inside Healthcare, and we're excited to hear about your exciting work in Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, happy to be here. Great. Well, let's dive right into it. I know you're doing a lot of interesting work in Pennsylvania, and boy, has 2020 been a trying year. Before we talk about all the challenges of 2020 and what's on the horizon for 2021, can you talk to us about your previous, previous experience and how you ended up as Chief Innovation Officer for the department? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so my background is as an internal medicine physician. Uh, I, I currently see patients. Um, and uh, all throughout my training, as I was going through training, I realized that a lot of my patients were experiencing um, kind of the, the downstream effects of some of these much larger systems issues. Uh, and so it got me interested in health policy. Um, and I was pretty deliberate through my medical training to have experiences in health policy. Um, I, I spent some time at the uh, Institute of Medicine, uh, now uh, National Academy of Medicine, um, at the uh, Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation in the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. And, and all throughout, when I got these policy experiences, I really liked the, um, how it could really just impact a lot of the patients I was seeing every day. Um, and uh, so I think that when I was uh, done with my um, medical residency training, I was looking for roles where I could have a, a big policy impact. And uh, so that brought me to, uh, to Pennsylvania. Um, I work in the Department of Human Services, which oversees uh, Medicaid and, and also um, has, has a hand in a lot of the human services that happen in the state, uh, whether that's um, uh, SNAP or LIHEAP um, or uh, the, uh, the juvenile justice program, foster care. Um, we, we really have, uh, we're, we're the biggest agency in the Commonwealth. Um, and so uh, this position's really opened my eyes to the importance of policy and the impact that we can make every day, particularly with how crazy everything has gotten in 2020 um, as well. So this role, I, I continue to see patients about once a week um, and uh, work a lot on uh, innovation in our Medicaid program. Well, that, that's a great background for our listeners, Dr. Jacobs, and, and thank you again for, for being on the podcast. So we're, we're so pleased that you were able to take some time. So, you know, you mentioned uh, COVID-19. I think it's all that we can really talk about now in health policy, it seems. Uh, no one really expected it in, 2020, in 2019, and here we are in 2020, and it's, it's top of mind and uh, changed everyone's daily life. I'm wondering, how has the department's priorities evolved or adapted to respond to COVID? What's, what's interesting about this question is um, several of the priorities of what we were working on in, in 2019 have become just all that much more important because of COVID. Um, and I'll give you some examples. So in this role, I, I really have three buckets um, that my work falls into. Uh, at least when I first started the job in, uh, in 2019, um, it was uh, trying to figure out ways to move our healthcare system towards value uh, and away from fee for service. Um, it was uh, trying to figure out ways to address the social determinants of health um, through uh, through Medicaid, um, and it was also uh, trying to figure out how to how we can mitigate some of the profound health inequities that exist in our Commonwealth. Um, 
And so we were working on those priority areas. Uh, and since COVID-19 hit, uh, I think as folks are pretty well aware, COVID-19 has really fallen on uh, the similar pre-existing fault lines of society. Uh, so some of the, the health inequities that we were focused on before um, have really been exacerbated by COVID-19. Um, but also the social determinants of health, like, like food insecurity and housing insecurity, um, have just reached a, a real crisis point for, for many. Um, and it has really just underscored the importance of addressing these issues and the interplay between these issues and, and one's health. Um, and also uh, several states throughout the country are in these really large uh, budget deficits. And so moving the healthcare system towards value uh, and away from fee-for-service um, has taken on a more uh, urgent, uh, uh, has been a more urgent requirement. Um, and uh, in particular, if we're trying to save money in, in a smart way, rather than just kind of cutting people or services from our, our, uh, our programs amidst the pandemic. So um, basically, so in many ways, it has kind of accentuated some of the pre-existing um, areas that we were uh, focusing on um, in particular. Yeah, that, those are all are are all just really important topics, and and uh, I can imagine now and 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 moving forward into twenty twenty one will will emerge, and and even more light will be shined on those on those really important issues. I, I do want to talk about some of the societal issues that we face in in twenty twenty, and with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and and then as you mentioned the the alarming disparities and in COVID-19 and infections and deaths, you know, I, I think every person in, in organization and, and government really has took a minute to ask, you know, how am I, or are we contributing or, and, and building, or how are we uh, contributing to this problem and, and how are we going to rectify this problem? I'm wondering how is the department and, and maybe in your role from an operational standpoint turned inward to ensure that equity is being built into the department? That's uh, such an important question. Um, it's not only about the people we serve, but it's also looking inward and figuring out as, uh, how we as a department can do better. Um, and so we've, we've uh, embarked on that path, uh, and we've had a lot of uh, uh, uncomfortable conversations that have started from the top. But um, I think that, that uh, the fact that it's uncomfortable means that it's important. Um, we, we have to have these conversations about um, what the racial and ethnic diversity looks like, um, not only through, through our organization, but also in positions of leadership and, and managerial positions. Uh, the Department of Human Services is about um, 16,000 people. Um, and we know that the people that we serve um, tend to be uh, disproportionately communities of color uh, in, in the Commonwealth. Um, do we as a department look like the folks that we're serving? Um, and, and how do we do better also to make sure that um, some of the implicit biases that really permeate every aspect of society, um, that we are really thoughtful and focused on how we can uh, address and mitigate them? Um, and so uh, we just actually this, this past week, um, it was uh, a racial equity week at uh, Department of Human Services, um, sharing a lot of resources about how, what we can start to think about uh, internally as a, a large organization ourselves um, with how we actually advance this work forward. Uh, and I think that uh, this is testament to uh, Secretary Miller, um, my boss, um, and her role in, in setting the tone for really the entire agency. Um, and she's been talking about racial equity 
um, any chance she gets. Uh, and so it's it's looking inward for sure, but we also have a lot of stakeholders that we interact with, whether that's payers, providers, um, uh, and and figuring out how we can also ask the organizations that we work with uh, as well to, to look inward also. Um, and I can talk also about some of the changes that we're making in Medicaid uh, in racial equity in particular, if that's, that's of interest as well. It, it absolutely is, please do. Sure. Um, so uh, as, as mentioned, um, uh, we've been focused on, on, uh, on promoting equity in our, in our services and programs. And uh, Medicaid is, a, is an area that is particularly important. We know that there exist these, um, these uh, uh, health outcome uh, inequities, and they've persisted over time. Um, so in Pennsylvania, we split our Medicaid program into uh, physical health, uh, behavioral health, and, uh, and long-term services and supports um, branches. Uh, and so in physical health, uh, we've been tracking these disparities for many years. Um, and uh, we've seen that some of the disparities have improved. Some of them have really been persistent over time. Um, and so now for the first time this year, uh, we are looking at some, uh, some racial inequities in particular uh, with quality outcomes in, uh, in terms of well-child visits, the number of uh, visits that a, a child gets in the first 15 months of life, also timely access to prenatal care. Um, we've seen this big disparity between uh, Black Pennsylvanians and White Pennsylvanians, um, and with well-child visits, it's also uh, between Black children and White children. Um, and so we've seen these disparities over time, and for the first time this year, we're actually saying that we're going to incentivize the Medicaid managed care organizations that we work with uh, to close this disparity. Uh, and if the, um, the Medicaid managed care organizations meet the, um, the NCQA benchmarks, the 75th percentile, 90th percentile uh, benchmarks, specifically within the black membership um, in particular, that there would be an, an incentive at the end of the day. Um, so we're devoting $26 million of our program to help close these disparities. And, and we think it's important in particular because these are some of the, the process outcomes that lead to um, a maternal mortality gap between black mothers and white mothers. that's uh, about three to one. Um, and so uh, that is, that's one of the examples of a, um, a specific equity incentive that we're putting into place. The second thing that we're trying to do is um, we're working with um, our man Medicaid managed care organizations to, uh, to implement a maternity care bundle payment. Um, and this is an example of a value-based purchasing model that rewards value. Uh, and what we're saying though within this model is that there has to be uh, health equity measures. Um, how are the uh, how is the black membership uh, doing compared to the uh, to, compared to the national benchmarks, the NCQA national benchmarks, um, and rewarding providers that actually are are providing um, equitable care as well. Um, so those I think are two important ways that we're looking at our Medicaid program in particular uh, as as a way that we can start to close some of these disparities. That is such a great approach, Dr. Jacobs, and, and here at NCQA, we are excited that many states are now uh, looking at a very similar approach, which I, I think can get the buy-in that we re, that we truly need to, to move the uh, needle on this important issue. Um, you know, Pennsylvania has been an adopter of NCQA's multicultural healthcare distinction uh, for some time now and, and required it for those physical health plans that you mentioned. So how, how does the multicultural healthcare distinction fit into the state's larger health equity goals? 
Absolutely. Uh, so the multicultural healthcare distinction, um, I, we had, uh, I had mentioned earlier uh, that basically we're asking the organizations that we work with to also look inward. Um, and this has been a powerful way uh, that we of a state have, um, have done this in the past. So I mentioned that there's those different branches of Medicaid in, in Pennsylvania. Um, in physical health, what we had seen earlier on as we were tracking these disparities over time is that the, we, we actually have the first Medicaid MCO in the country to achieve the, um, the multicultural health care distinction. Um, and what we saw is that there was actually an improvement in some of those disparity measures. Um, so when we approached that MCO and we're talking about it, um, we, we realized that this process of getting the, um, the multicultural health care distinction was an important way um, to actually start closing uh, those disparities. Um, and so that's why we, we expanded that requirement to all of our physical health uh, Medicaid managed care organizations a few years ago. We've had uh, several of those uh, physical health MCOs achieve that distinction since that time. Um, but we've also, for this year, um, we've expanded that requirement uh, to our behavioral health MCOs uh, and also our um, long-term services and supports MCOs as well because of how important it's been in closing uh, those, uh, those disparities. Um, and this multicultural healthcare distinction, um, just like we are stratifying our data, looking at disparities, um, it really makes sure, sure that uh, the MCOs that we work with are doing the same thing. Um, and uh, for example, they also look at uh, language as well, making sure that there, um, there are providers that speak the right language to treat the, their membership. Um, and there's been plenty of stories about um, these, these MCOs looking at their provider networks and identifying where uh, there might be some, um, some holes in, uh, in when they need a provider that speaks a certain language. So they go out and they, they uh, put another provider in network that might speak that language. So um, I think that there's been a lot of good outcomes that come from the multicultural healthcare distinction requirement uh, that we've put there as a state, and uh, that's why we're expanding it this year. Well, that is, that is great news, and, and we appreciate it here at NCQA Pennsylvania's commitment to that program as an early adopter. We've we've seen a lot of other states now uh, uh, explore the program. Um, we know that the California uh, uh, Covered California, the ACA exchange plans are, are proposing or considering also adding that requirement. So we're very excited about. Um, the interest in that product and, and that, uh, that it really kind of fits the need of the current time uh, based off of everything that's happened in the past year. Uh, I, I did want to talk a little bit about a topic that came at, uh, about in late 2019. And, the, and I feel like, unfortunately, COVID-19 uh, maybe um, caught a little bit more of the headlines than, than this topic, but um, I still think very important and timely um, given everything that's happened. Um, so, so in our health policy world that you and I both live in, there was a lot of conversation around uh, algorithms that, that uh, health plans and, and healthcare organizations use to um, identify folks for services, uh, folks who might need social determinants of health uh, interventions, if you will. Um, and, and these algorithms were, were looking at utilization alone and some researchers came out and said, you know, if you do that, <laughs> you miss any underutilization and you miss the minority communities that have been um, distrustful of the system for years and, and might not be utilizing the system. So there's a real problem in, in matching people for interventions. You know, I'm wondering how Pennsylvania's 
Um, considering that, or if you guys are looking at that at all in, in, in discussions with your plans, perhaps? Absolutely. Um, this is such an important issue. So um, uh, there was a, a group of authors. Uh, first author was uh, Professor uh, Zayed uh, Obermeyer, um, came out with this paper in Science um, that said uh, essentially when when the uh, insurer when this insurer algorithm that they were looking at um, when they, this insurer was trying to match uh, services uh, to the the people in that plan who would need the service they were using this algorithm um, and. The algorithm, while on its face it was predicting um, future utilization, future cost, um, when you actually break it down from a, a racial perspective, uh, what it was doing is that whereas almost 50% of the black membership of this insurer should have gotten a service, uh, only about 17% did. Um, and that's a huge difference. Um, and it, it leads to these could lead to these gigantic disparities in who's actually getting access to medical care. The reason why these bias in these algorithms exist is because um, it, it actually bakes in some of the disparities inherent in our society and institutional racism more generally. Um, the, when we actually look at why, um, for example, the, the black population um, might not be accessing care uh, as readily as, as the white population, um, it's because in some ways there's um, perhaps a lack of uh, just geographic access to, um, uh, to medical care. There, there could also be, um, there's, there's also is this historic distrust um, that is based on a legacy um, going back to the key experiments and, and before that. So there's uh, a lot of historic distrust, distrust between um, certain minority communities and the, the healthcare sector. And, and the health, there's all these studies about how the healthcare system continues to discriminate against um, uh, a black and other minority populations. And so um, when we're using these algorithms uh, to predict who will need services based on their future utilization and future cost, for any given level of sickness, um, an individual who is an, an individual who's in this insurance uh, program, um, they, they won't be getting access to the medical services that they might need. Uh, and that's a huge problem. Um, and so we've start to, started to talk about this with our MCOs, um, and actually we've, we've reached out to the, the study authors as well um, to have some preliminary discussions about what this might look like. Um, and uh, we're trying to, to think of a way that, that we as a state um, can provide some kind of oversight here and work with our uh, Medicaid MCOs to really address what's, uh, what, what is a system-wide problem. Um, and so uh, we've just really started those conversations, but we're, we're hoping to make some headway in a, in a pro for, for problems that it's really just not specific to Pennsylvania, but it's really existing uh, across the, the country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one that maybe isn't uh, known about yet, but it, it seems like if we don't solve that problem, it, it every other thing we might try to do <laughs> um, could, could end up... Uh, being for not if, if those algorithms and, and that bias is baked in. I, I did, you know, we were talking about uh, health policy and, and state health policy and an emerging trend that we're seeing in states. And I know that you guys are exploring in Pennsylvania are, are new tech players um, in this industry or in the uh, system here. And um, I'm wondering how, uh, how and why uh, Pennsylvania is considering a, a resource and referral platform, which they're intended to, uh, I believe, 
bridge the gap between uh, social services and healthcare. So I'm wondering why this is a priority for you all. Absolutely. Um, so as a physician, I like to pretend that uh, <laughs> we have the doctors and nurses and other kind of clinical professionals have complete control over um, uh, our patient's health. And the reality is that, that we just don't. Uh, most people spend the majority of their life outside the doctor's office. Uh, and estimates are that only about 10 to 20 percent of a, a person's uh, uh, likelihood of, of premature death are actually even affected by the medical professional. A huge per, uh, percentage of that is actually affected by the, uh, the social determinants of health, whether that's food, housing, education, employment, uh, so on and so forth. And so um, I think the healthcare system more broadly is increasingly recognizing the importance of addressing um, these, these social determinants of health barriers that might exist for, um, for the folks that we're serving. And so a resource and referral platform, uh, what it means is uh, we'd essentially have uh, a closed loop referral system uh, and also in a, a way to assess an individual's uh, social determinants of health. And this platform would collect a lot of the, the data centrally um, as well. So what it means is as a provider, if I um, have a patient that comes to me and is uh, suffering from food insecurity, then I can send that, uh, that patient to a food bank. Um, and the resource and referral tool would actually allow me to, to make sure that they, they went to that food bank um, and got, uh, got some of the, the food that they need. And so we are uh, in the midst of uh, procuring a, um, a statewide resource and referral tool platform as a result. Um, but the corollary to that is um, uh, if, you know, once we get this up and running, trying to make sure that, uh, that the community-based organizations that are performing the work that are, are really addressing these social needs um, that we're um, being much more deliberate about including community-based organizations in the healthcare system more broadly. Um, so we're also thinking about that as well. That, that's really exciting. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of innovation that's happening uh, to try to solve some of these really complex societal problems. Uh, you know, 2020 really felt like it did bring endless challenges. You know, I'm, I'm wondering if there is something, if there's innovation in the state or, or something that you are particularly proud of in Pennsylvania. Oh yeah, it's, um, it's, been, it's been quite the year. Uh, but looking back, um, I think that this has also been a year when, um, when states have been responsible for so much. Um, and I think a lot of states have really um, stepped up and, and try to do as good of a job as, as folks can possibly do um, to, to help uh, everybody in the state at a time when so many people are scared about uh, COVID-19, uh, about their economic well-being, about their, about their health more broadly. Um, and so I think in the past year, I think I'm just really proud to work with the team that, that I've been working with um, at the Department of Human Services. Um, we've We've all had a ton of challenges um, amidst a state budget deficit and have really, um, I think, kind of stepped, stepped up when, when we can to, to really try and make sure that everything from, uh, from uh, uh, testing and contact tracing and vaccine distribution um, are happening, but also not losing sight of these core issues that have been um, just highlighted so um, so deeply by COVID-19. And so some of the, the equity incentives that we're putting into our program um, as, uh, as, as really the first time in, in our, in our uh, uh, Commonwealth's history, um, I'm really proud of, and I think will be uh, potentially a lasting legacy uh, in, in the state as well. Yeah, and I completely uh, commend you for, for those efforts. 
So, so now that we're, you know, this is the last podcast of 2020 and, and we're headed into 2021, you know, as we put 2020 behind us, you know, what are you excited for, for, and what are you hopeful for, for 2021? Oh, well, I guess the first thing would be a vaccine. Um, it's really, <laughs> uh, it's exciting that uh, the vaccine is currently being uh, distributed as we speak. And um, I'm, uh, I'm hearing from a lot of uh, the people that I went to residency with and trained with along the way to, to my uh, getting my medical degree, um, that they've, they've started to receive some vaccinations. Um, so it does bring, I think, a lot of hope for, for the, um, uh, for 2021. And, and with the new year coming, I think that everything that the pandemic has highlighted um, from some of the, the racial inequities that we talked about today, um, the, some of the issues related to, to food insecurity and housing insecurity, um, and just the importance more broadly of, of looking at, at folks' health and, and measuring it and making sure that we're um, doing as good of a job as we can from a policy perspective. Um, I think that all of the things that we've needed to address in our healthcare system for so long are being brought to the forefront, um, and so uh, I'm, that that gives me hope that in the the next couple of years um, uh, we can really uh, redevote ourselves to to addressing some of these issues and um, and really make headway, whereas we might not have been able to do so otherwise. Well, I couldn't agree more, um, and, and that's a, a great place to leave it. And and I'm excited for my vaccine. I know I know that much. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Doug Jacobs, Pennsylvania is definitely lucky to have you. And, and thank you for joining NCQA's podcast today. Of course, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I really appreciate uh, the time. Mm-hmm.